sports, 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 sports. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Sportsball, part of the SPDM crew podcast. We talk about sports-related topics, but we focus on you, the fan, and what you like, whether it's a sports team or an athlete or just an individual sport. Today, I will be talking with Adam. Adam, how's it going? Uh, good, Mark. Um, yeah, really good. How are you? I'm good. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me because we're talking about Formula One today. and. Yes. Truth be told, I don't know a lot about Formula One, and I'm really excited to talk about this because once upon a time, I did kind of like NASCAR a little bit, and then eventually it just kind of phased away because I got familiar with a little bit of the Indy 500 because that is like a big race here. And you just told me that the Indy 500 (laughs) is not Formula One at all. So Adam, let's just start with this. Give me the Cliff Notes version of Formula One. <laughs> Just educate me to the best of your abilities. What's Formula One? The Cliff Notes on Formula One. Um, it could be a long, long set of Cliff Notes, to be honest. That's fine. Uh, That's fine. Let's well, talk about it. So Formula One is a regulated look. So the cars are very highly regulated in what they can build, and there's very strict dimensions on what they can build and where. However, it is a free-for-all sport where teams have, well, up until recently, had an open-ended budget. So they could just build what they, just spend hundreds of millions of dollars to build their cars. So it's fundamentally an aerodynamically-based formula, which means the cars get most of their performance from aerodynamics. It's been around, the Formula One World Championship started in 1950, but Formula One was around before that. It just created the World Championship in 1950. So it's got a very long history, a very grounded and kind of an elite heritage actually i would say for lack of a better word footnotes oh, cliff notes on formula one that's a, actually a hard question because i think i know look, i've been following the sports for close to hardcore following it for nearly 30 years and i was a casual fan before that so basically once i finished school i was able to follow it more closely i was able to delve right into it and i am a hardcore fan of sport like i read about it every day so giving you cliff notes on it is kind of hard for me to do because i think i don't know where to begin you might need to ask something more specific to be honest okay. Mike. why don't we start with this how'd you get into formula one what was it about it that you're <clears> like, this is something that i'm really going to be invested in because you mentioned that you were a casual fan how'd yeah. you become a casual fan and then give me what well, give me a little bit about yeah. when you became more of a hardcore fan so I can tell you exactly how I, became, how I was a casual fan. So in the mid-80s, a Formula One race came to Australia because Formula One was historically always based in Europe. And then they started branching out globally and they went to Japan and Australia was one of the next on the list that was outside of Europe. So they actually had a race in Adelaide in South Australia. And, you know, when the race was in Australia, I was able to watch it on the weekends because I grew up in a very sports-mad family. So we watched cricket, we watched AFL football, we watched anything that was on TV. We watched any sport that was going, to be honest. This was before you could pick and choose whatever you wanted. If it was on TV, we would just watch it if it was a sport. So I got to watching it one weekend, I guess, with my dad. And what really attracted me to it is that when the races in Australia, outside of the racing, they would show you little snippets of the sport and what drove it. And it was the technology that drove me into it, like how amazing these cars were, how amazingly engineered they were. Like the best engineers in the world work on these cars. Like they come from aerospace industry, these specific universities in England that train people to be in Formula One, aerodynamics, fluid dynamics, and so forth. So they don't make it to like the private enterprise of aeronautics. They are in Formula One or probably vice versa, actually, because Formula One is where the money is. So, yeah, it was the technology that drove me. And this was during my high school, primary school days as well. And how I became a hardcore fan is that I'd finished school and I kind of went, had a couple of gap years. I didn't work, didn't go to school. And I was able to stay up late because the races are on very late in Australia because of our time zone, as, as you're aware of now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, um, so I was able to stay up late and watch the races fundamentally. And then I just kind of got really hardcore into the sport. I would record them on my VHS, on my VCR. So I'd have big rows of VHS tapes with races that I'd just keep re-watching the same races over and over. And I'd buy magazines, I'd read the sport. 
sport and that's basically it just grew and grew until now I still just think of the sport every day I, I love it for everything that it is from not just the racing it's sort of was the behind the scenes stuff the characters within it the different drivers and the, because there's such a rotation of new drivers coming in and old drivers leaving especially uh, and also team bosses and engineers so I know you know I, I don't know just the drivers I know the guys who build the cars as well and who, who are race engineers and yeah, I, I go very deep into it. See, that's awesome because I know a lot of people who, when it comes to any type of auto racing, the only thing that they really follow is the driver. That's it. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's very easy to latch onto the driver because they're <clears> the <throat> most upfront person. But yeah. I was one of those people at first who thought that auto racing was not like a team sport. But then you, the more that you think about it, it's like, no, no, there's actually a lot that goes into this between your pit crew, between the people who have to design the car, the people who have to keep you safe, anything like you still need coaching as well. And you still need guidance to kind of help you out Mm -hmm. because there's a lot more that goes into this. So I'm kind of curious from your perspective, what is it about like some of the behind the scenes stuff that kind of you latch onto and that has kind of caused you to be uh, interested in that part of it versus just, you know, um, what the casual fan would be like, where I'm just going to focus on the driver. That's really about it. So I could go, I could go back a little bit with that, with an answer to that question, because I mean, on it's on the surface, it's, there's a lot of drama uh, and a lot of intrigue in the sport. And a lot of that is built from when, geez, how far back do I go and go through the history of the sport? The sport used to, I'm, I'm going to do it because I like to tell a short story along Mike. So back in the day, um, back in like the 50s and 60s, up until the 80s, the sport was run by FOCA, which is Formula One Constructors Association. And that was run by the head of the FIA, who was basically figured out to be basically, he was very biased towards French teams, French drivers. And it got the commercial rights got taken over by a British guy called Bernie Ecclestone. So he basically owned Formula One, a sport that he never owned in the first place when he was able to take it and commercialise it. And he sold, he made the team's money basically by selling the rights to the races, the TV, TV networks. And that's how they really made their money. And then the teams also made money from sponsorships on the card. So it all kind of stems from that. So when Bernie took over the took over the sport, he marketed it and created it as this elite place where it was only really for the it was closed gates, right? Basically, like it was very well gate kept and it wasn't open to everyone. And that was formed part of the intrigue. Is like, what's going on behind those curtains? Like Wizard of Oz style stuff, right? So that was one aspect that got me into it. But then, as I as I said, when I was able to get into the sport properly, it just happened to coincide with the release of, of a Formula One devoted magazine which kind of went behind the scenes. They interviewed all the like, race engineers. They interviewed personalities in the sport that weren't necessarily the drivers. They used to do a lot of great analysis on not just the races, but also driving styles of each driver, how each driver would approach certain corners on tracks. And that type of minutiae and detail-oriented stuff is what helped drive my interest in the sport. So behind-the-scenes stuff, there's just so much depth in there. And if anyone's listening to this and they've seen Drive to Survive, that show has done one and showcasing the sport off to non-Formula 1 fans. But it is dramatised. It is out of sequence with some of the edits that you see. So people like me that watch it, although I watch it, I go, it's kind of frustrating because it's like that never happened then. They will have the fake commentary, like it's not the real commentary going over that you hear in the voiceovers. They'll play a driver's radio at a different in a different race or in a different aspect. So it dramatises what is being said in a clip that they're actually showing, even though the driver never could have said that four races earlier or five races after. They show it in this race to make it more dramatic. So Drive to Survive, although it's very good and has driven the popularity of sport, there's much more. I mean, if you have seen the show and you like it, that's awesome that you like it, but there's much more. That show really just scratches the surface of what is going on behind the scenes. Like, it's it's a very deep sport. It's kind of similar to how Hard Knocks for or American football has kind of shed a light. It's like, hey, it's not just the players. There's so much more that goes into this from... You know, the, the equipment, yeah. the like all the coaches, like there's not just the head coach. There's, you know, so many different coaches on on the staff that help out all these players. And sure, they get all the, the glory and all the, the press and everything like that. But there's like a ton of people out there that actually mm. help bring all of this to fruition for football. So I was going to ask you a little bit more about Drive to Survive, and we'll get into that a little bit more. But let me ask you this. 
What is it about Formula One versus any other racing circuit? Like, what? why do you keep going back to Formula One versus, you know, like NASCAR or whatever, like IndyCar series or any other driving sport? I'm going to tell you why that's a good question, because Formula One is very driven by the car. Like, all the, the from the best driver on the grid to the worst driver on the grid, there's probably two to three tenths of a second of a lap between the best and which is like no, it's, it's no time at all but what really drives formula one is a great driver and you've got the great and you're in the best car you're, you're going to win the world championship or you're going to go very close to it you're going to win a lot so the reason that that's a good question is because a lot of other sports indycar for example formula e for example they have really close racing australian v8 supercars really really close racing bumper to bumper stuff really exciting racing where formula one doesn't have that as much although there is exciting racing in that i used to always compare formula one to soccer like formula one has gotten better with its racing because of certain things they've done build the cars and certain aerodynamic rules that keep the cars closer together but back in the day when it was just dominated cars once the first lap was over that was pretty much the finishing order for the race because cars just couldn't overtake but what i loved about formula one like soccer Similar things that people complain about soccer is that there's not a lot of scoring. But with soccer, when there is a score or when there is close to a score, you hear the crowd or the the audience watching that, and it's a huge release of energy and excitement and just that one little bit. And Formula One is very similar to that. And that's what I like about it, where where you have with those, what I'm going to say, a manufactured racing in other series like IndyCar and NASCAR for whatever, it is manufactured racing, so there's always excitement, always excitement. And in the end, when it's always exciting, it's very boring. Like it's, it just becomes, oh, okay, so that they've had another crash, big deal. Or they've that dude's overtaken that dude or that dude. But in the end, it becomes the same thing, so it stops being exciting. Where with Formula 1, it's very strategy-driven too because there's a lot of regulations built around tyres. They have to use different tyre types during the race and through qualifying. And there's so much going on that that's what drives my interest because – when something does happen, it's super exciting and there's just this build-up. You can have a 50-lap race and you can watch 45 laps where it's just like, rah, rah, same stuff, they're on the same strategy, nothing's going to happen. Then all of a sudden, a safety car can happen or it can start raining and then it's just on. Like, And then those last five or ten laps can be just incredible stuff. And mm-hmm. the last four or five years of Formula 1 has been really amazing for that aspect. Last year, there were some races, and it's not necessarily always watching – I'm going to ramble on a little bit here too because it's not always watching who has won the race because so much of the story of Formula 1 is the racing from third down. Like who's going to come third, who's going to come fourth because you have a driver's championship but you also have a constructor's championship. And last year that constructor's championship race was really exciting, especially towards the end of the season where there's certain teams who started, McLaren, for example, they started, they were terrible at the start of last year. Then all of a sudden they did something to the car and they made it, it was the second best car. And they ended up climbing from last in the championship and they ended up coming fourth from middle of nowhere, scoring podiums very consistently. And then in the end, they ended up, like that race to fourth in the championship came very close. And then, you had Mercedes and Ferrari fighting for second. And what that means for the teams is like tens of millions of dollars between those first places, like in prize money at the end of the year. So that drives the excitement of the sport once you're deeply involved in it. Yeah, I don't know if I've even answered the question you asked now. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> it's, it's all good. It's all good. One thing I'm very curious about, because I still don't get this about NASCAR, how long does the Formula One season typically go in terms of like month to month, how many races are involved? And yeah. can you describe a little bit about not like the team, I guess the team structure. Is it just, you know, like, is there a, a team where they have like three or four racers in a particular race? Or is it just, you know, like each car is like their own individual team? Well, when I first started getting into the sport, there were 16 races in the season. Sometimes it'd be 17. This year, it, it, 2024 season is about to start at... Uh, 2nd of March is the first race this year, 2nd and 3rd of March in Bahrain. And this year is going to be the longest season ever with 24 races. That's mm-hmm. it's huge. And and all, all I'm hearing from behind the scenes, and which is because I follow behind the scenes journalists and, and listen to podcasts that they're on and whatever, is it's too tiring. Like it's wearing everyone out. And it's not sustainable to have that many races. 
but because the sport is so popular now that more countries want to come in. Just recently, Chicago, the, the Formula One actually registered a trademark for the Chicago Grand Prix. So there's plans for a Chicago Grand Prix coming as well. So that's going to mean four races in America, which is nuts because there actually used to be a rule where a country could only have one race. And that's just out the window because America is a big market for the sport and the teams love it because they sell their cars there. Um, you have Ferrari, Alpine, but even I'll get to the structure a bit in a minute, but <laughs> I might be answering a future question here, but the car brands that are in the sport kind of relabel themselves for their elite, but more more upper class brands. So Ferrari's Ferrari, right? McLaren have started their own company and they rival in Ferrari. They want to rival Ferrari in, in their sales and whatever, but their cars are better than Ferrari's just quietly. But their sales are not even close. But then with Renault, you have they've branded themselves Alpine, which is their more elite upper class brand. So they're Alpine, and that's what they market to the rest of the world, which is Nissan as well. Then you have Red Bull don't ever make cars. I don't even know who was. Well, they used to be Infinity, which was a brand of Nissan. Um, so back to the structure, the structure of the team. So each team has two cars, two drivers for the entire season. They'll have a reserve driver if one of those drivers gets sick or injured. And some teams, depending on how much money they've got, there is a, just to explain that a bit, there is a budget cap now. So each team can only spend $145 million on their car on bits that will make the car go quicker. So it's very structured. It's very forensically accountant. It's very well looked over the books. So the only things that aren't really counted as far as salary and wages, they don't count the driver's salaries in that cost cap or the top three paid personnel, which is normally the team principal and whatever. So some teams, Mercedes, Ferraris, for example, they might have over a 1,000 staff because they not only have the team, but they also have the engine departments. And those teams will also have to build engines for other teams who don't make their own engines. So Mercedes sell their engine to Claren, Aston Martin, Williams. Ferrari sell their engine to Haas, and which is an American team, and to Alfa Romeo, who are soon turning to Audi. Actually, Audi's coming entering the sport in a couple of years. So... Just one other thing I wanted to talk about structure was when we were talking about before with which one that's something that reminded me I don't never got it out but we're talking about the pit stops or, or I wanted to talk about the pit stops and how amazing they are because they have like 20, 20 dudes twenty guys on the car when a car comes in 20, 20 different guys will work on this car just to change four tires and that's it cars out the cars back out in two seconds so. That's the type of structure they have. So you have a lot of people back at the factory who are watching the race live and they'll strategize back at the factory no matter where they are in the world. And then you have your race teams who the two cars will each, they do each have their own team. So they each have their own race engineers and their own like, structural engineers and, and what have you, and own opposite sides of the pit. Although they very much work as a team, they still work against each other because they want to beat each other as well. So there's competition between the teams, but there's competitions within the teams as well. So it's always fascinating to see and see what goes on. Yeah. Is there like a the most famous racetrack for Formula One? Because you know, like in Indy, like yes. for yeah. for IndyCar, there's you know Indianapolis among plenty of others. Even with NASCAR, <laughs> your you know your Daytona. For example, what about for Formula One? Which which is like the race that like everybody looks forward to in the typical Formula One season? Or is that a bit of a loaded question? It's because be, it kind of is different. Um, it can be. It can be for me. For me, I have a very clear answer. But I'm not from one of those traditional countries. You've always had the race. I've always had a race. So a British person would say it's Silverstone. An Italian person would say it's Monza. Japanese person would say Suzuka. Because it comes, they're, they're all brilliant racetracks to race on. So the trend has gone towards modern tracks are a bit ordinary. They, they don't promote good racing and they're street races and it's not, they're not great for drivers because they're stop-start tracks, whereas those tracks I mentioned a minute ago, they're basically built for racing. That's what they're for. And they're, and they're, very, and they're very fun to drive. They're very rewarding to drive when you're, when you're a race car driver. Well, the answer for me is Monaco, not living in any of those countries. I always look forward to the Monaco Grand Prix. I couldn't really tell you why, because it's actually quite a boring race most of the time. It's because it's an impossible circuit. I don't know if you've ever seen seen a race on the Monaco circuit, but mm-hmm. the cars barely fit around the track anymore because it's, it's just a very small enclosed track. There's never any overtaking. But the magic with Monaco is what I was talking about with Formula One in general is that when something does happen, it is spectacular and it's awesome. And it's such a challenging circuit to watch. <clears throat> when you're into the sport like me, watching the drivers drive through that circuit and certain specifically certain corners of that circuit 
and watching their commitment and the speed they actually go, it is a phenomenal place to watch cars go on now. It is insane because I've seen the cars in real life before and TV does not do it justice on how fast these cars are actually going. When I've seen them in real life, like I'd been following the sport for a good 15 years before I saw them in real life and I was blown away at what speeds they're really doing around these corners. It is phenomenal. Absolutely unbelievable, actually. Well, not only how fast they're going, but you can kind of tell on uh, when you're watching it on TV, it's loud. It is so loud <clears throat> as well. Not so much anymore. Not within really? the engine formula. No, they actually had to build something in the engines to make them louder. Because when this new engine reg regulations came out in 2014, I actually went to the first race in 2014 and didn't need earplugs. When, when I went five years before, they were racing with V8s. Like, the whole ground shook. You needed earmuffs, earplugs, everything. Otherwise, you would have, your ears would be bleeding. <laughs> the, literally the ground would shake but with the newer cars it was I, I, I could i was standing maybe 50 meters what's that i don't know what it is 150 feet from the track mm -hmm. and it was safe purely 100 percent safe and then it wasn't liked by the fans in, at large so they had to change those regulations to make them louder they just put stuff in the engine to make them make a bit more noise but when you have 20 of them at, at once, yeah, that's going to be loud. But if you look at some old YouTube clips of the V10s and V12s, those cars rip your face off. Honestly, mm -hmm. when I drive past you, they are insanely loud. A lot of, lot of ex-drivers are deaf because they're just they're sitting with that engine right behind them for hours at a time. Do you have a driver or team that you're rooting for right now? And um, what has that evolution for you kind of been like as you've been a fan for a long time and nobody, mm, mm. like what's the usual lifespan of, of a Formula One driver? Like how long do they race Whoa. before they eventually either retire or just walk away? Well, that's actually lengthening at the moment, to be honest. Drivers are going longer than they ever have. Back, say, I'll answer your first question first. So, Drivers, I don't necessarily support drivers. I support my countrymen. So there's a couple of Australians that race at the moment and another one on the fringes. You're actually from my suburb, to be honest. He's dead. Nice. Microsoft a world champion, yeah. Um, so he's actually a test driver for Alpine, and they live just across the highway here, not far from me. Well, they did before they sold the house, but anyway. But also, I'll follow my countrymen. I'm a big fan of Oscar Piastri and Daniel Ricciardo, etc. But as far as teams go, I don't typically follow drivers, drivers. I like to just, I love the sport for loving the sport. Mm. I'll normally have a driver I hate for a few years at a time until they piss off, till they retire or whatever and go away rather than drivers I love. I love to see them all win unless someone's winning all the time. Then you'll have to see them lose occasionally, right? <laughs> As for a team, McLaren would be my team because mm. back in the day, when I first started watching hardcore, I was a Damon Hill fan. I wanted Damon Hill to win. And I hated Michael Schumacher, and that's who he was racing against, basically. But as it moved on, I became a McLaren because I love a driver called Mika Hakkinen. Mika Hakkinen is still my all-time favourite driver from the late 90s. He was, was when he was at his best. He won two world championships, championships in a row. Insanely quick guy, probably one of the quickest guys there ever has been. So, yeah, just been a McLaren fan ever since. <clears throat> as for the drivers, yeah. So, yeah, look, so not that long ago, drivers were in their peak, and they would retire in the mid-30s. But now drivers are going longer because I think the cars are a bit easier to drive. Um, they're not as loud and, and not that they're, they're not easy to drive cars. They're definitely not easy cars to drive. I'm not going to make, make But I think it's just there's a couple of drivers now who Lewis Hamilton is going to be driving into his 40s, which is weird. Yeah. Um, there's a guy out there called Fernando Alonso who's one of the greatest drivers there ever was. He's entering, I think he turns 42 or 43 this year. That's really exceptional for a Formula One driver to drive that long. And still at the peak, he's not there because to collect the paycheck. He's because Formula One doesn't work like that. If you're not up to the gate, if you're not up to scratch, you're out the door. It's it's just such a ruthless sport. So it's not like it's not like Tampa Bay hiring Tom Brady and just just as a kind of a token, even though he did well, but he's still Alonso's still at the top of his game in his forties. He's very devoted to the sport and and, and, and an incredible racer. Um, so some drivers will be in there for a year. If they don't cut the mustard, they're gone. So the evolution of that, of seeing drivers come in and out of the sport, is it's quite a constant rotation. Like I, I actually have a spreadsheet from, that I've kept from Formula One. From, uh, and this year is the first year ever, I think, in the sport where there hasn't been a, a rookie driver. So 2024 will be the first year there's no, no rookie driver in the sport. Um, no, no new drivers. Everyone is staying. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. How how is it that this season doesn't have a rookie driver? Is it because there's more races? 
there's just, you know, you only get a finite amount of, of drivers in per, per race, or is it just nobody, No. nobody qualified, nobody knew qualified to be part of a formula one this season. I'm, I'm curious about how that works. No, it's not that. I think the teams just wanted to stick to who they have. There is a change of regulations in two years' time. So there's going to be a bit of a crossover where they want a, a consistent and familiar team base, um, as in driver-wise. <clears throat> there's definitely drivers qualified out there that come up through. So with Formula 1, you have junior formulas that lead that the stepping stone for me. You have Formula 3 and then Formula 2. And if the champion, whoever wins the Formula 2 champion, which is they're a world champion, but in Formula 2, they can't race in Formula 2 anymore. They actually have to, they're not allowed to race in that, in that formula anymore. They actually have to basically quit. And generally, they get stepped up into Formula 1 the next year. There's just no seats available. It's purely about contracts and what have you. So Teo Porcher, who won Formula 2 last year, he's, he's basically now a reserve driver for Salva, who are turning into Audi in a couple of years. So he will probably get a drive, but they're just, they're just going, they'll just become reserve drivers and test drivers. Um, and that's that's basically it. So why did it happen this year? I don't know. It's a bit of a fluke, honestly, this year, why it didn't happen. Just the contracts weren't offered up. There's plenty out there who are qualified to do it, and a lot of people who miss out on seats because, like I said, there's some drivers hanging around to their 40s. They're just not leaving, and they're still great. So And the teams don't want to get rid of them because developing a car year on year is is tough, and the way Red Bull are dominating, they want that positive feedback from experienced drivers who can feedback on the car where it's failing, where they can improve it so the engineers can go and build new parts, redesign new things, and then hopefully make their car as quick or quicker than the cars in front of it. So it's very it's very in-depth. There's a lot going on. So how does the Formula One season work then? Because there's 24 races, and I'm assuming that there's either some type of point system or something where you accumulate enough points and then whoever has the most points at the end wins. But how does how does that work? Yeah, so it's very simple, to be honest. It's not manufactured like NASCAR. Not manufactured, but it's not convoluted like the way NASCAR do it. I don't exactly know how IndyCar do it, but um, with Formula 1, it's basically uh, the if you win a race, that's points are scored from in the top 10, so the top 10 cars score points. Um, the winner gets 25 points, all the way down 10th gets one point. So it just steps out like that. At the end of the year, if you've got the most points, you're the world champion. And as far as, because then there's the constructors champions as well, and you have two drivers in the team. And so if you have the two drivers have the most accumulative points, accumulated points, then you're, you're, you win the constructors championship. And it's just that simple in reality. Yeah. Uh, you're absolutely right when you say the NASCAR formula is very convoluted and there's, Yeah. there's playoffs, there's things that they got to do for dramatic purposes as well. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's kind of ridiculous, but this seems very straightforward, which I know I appreciate as somebody who just admires the sport from afar. <clears throat> it kind of goes back to an answer I had a while back that is that why I like this sport is because it is, despite its complexities, it's it award it's it's fair it's it's very fair in who it awards as the winner. Basically, at the, end, at, at the end of each year, it's, it's, it's it used to be a bit more. Like the point system has changed over the years. Like it used to be only the top six scored points, so they extended that to eight, then they extended to ten, and you know. But still, it's never been favoured that the best is the best for the year. It's it's that simple. Yeah, you don't have to get lucky to win. Yeah, Generally, yeah, you. yeah. So there's there's no weird flukes where like the third place team vault could vault into first first place by like some weird rule change. If if you win your races, then there's a good chance that you're just you're gonna win. That's that's Uh, that's how. right. Yep. Oh, that's Yep. that's nice and it's simplicity and just very straightforward. Mm. That's. kind Yeah. of refreshing to to hear something like Yeah, that. yeah, it is. I hope they never ever change that. That's Mm -hmm. that's one aspect of the sporting card. They need to keep the same. Do you have a a couple layers to this question because I want to talk about the tracks. There's Hmm. do you have a track or you mentioned, you know, how Monaco, you know, is is a race, but do you have like a track that you you look forward to to watching races on that track each year and on the flip side do you have a dream track that you're like one day like 
bucket list. This is the track that I want to go mm. watch a race at one of these days. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so online tag is Curb Rider. So that actually comes from me playing Formula One games. So I, when you race those simulations, those simulators, you get a really good feel for what what is a good track or what is not a good track, or, or you have your preferences anyway as to what's good. So, yeah, I always love to watch Silverstone. I love to watch um, uh, Spa in Belgium. love to watch Suzuka. I love to watch Monza. A lot of tracks have changed or been taken off the circuit. There's a few that I wish would come back that I used to just love racing around and, and were good to watch racing on. But a lot of it comes down to money and contracts with the Formula One group who, you know, they're there to make money. It's a business and that, that's cool, good for them. One bucket list race that I'd want to go to, yeah, Monaco easily is Monaco for sure. Yeah, that's the big bucket list race for me to go to. I don't think I ever will, but it'd be cool if I did. <laughs> one one of these days, right? Never, never, never say know. never. You've talked a lot about how things things have been changing. How like there's been there's no rookie driver this year. They're upping the amount mm. of races. Can you talk about some things that you see are welcome changes to the sport, and some things that are like why they do that? Yeah. Okay. Well, the big one recently is that the big big one. I'll, I'll tell you the structure of a Grand Prix weekend. So basically the traditional Grand Prix weekend is a four-day weekend. So Thursday, drivers would do press and they would do little events to market the sport, market their teams, whatever. Friday, there'd be two two practice sessions. They used to be an hour and a half. They're now an hour, a one-hour sessions practice. Saturday, you'd have a third practice session. You'd have qualifying, which is a three-part qualifying. So with qualifying, you'd have qualifying one. If you're in the bottom five in qualifying one, you don't get to do qualifying two. Then in qualifying two, if you're in the bottom five, you don't get to do qualifying three. So only the top 10 in qualifying two will do qualifying three, which then determines who gets pole position and so forth. Then you have your race on Sunday the next day. So late, what they've re, what they've introduced um, within the last two or three years is a sprint format weekend. So they have a sprint race instead of just the 300-kilometre Grand Prix. It's because the Formula One Formula One race is, a three, is 300 kilometres uh, or... 300 kilometers and and over so that's the minimum unless it's at monaco because that's a different story yeah Yeah. but now they have a sprint race which is a 100 kilometer race and they just like so it's a third distance and they have a qualifying for that as well and because they've only just introduced it they're constantly tweaking the rules there's a new tweak to the rules for that this year that will start in china china is actually back on the calendar this year where they do the first sprint race it's that's one I'm, that I'm not a fan of, and, and from everything I've understood and read, traditional Formula One fans aren't a fan of. But just to explain that a little bit, uh, as how that how the sprint race came about is that back in 2017, 2016, 2017, I was telling you how Bernie Ecclestone brought the sport and he had took it over and commercialised it and got it to where it was. He sold it to a, an American company called Liberty Media. And Liberty run a lot of sport in America. I think, I don't know, you could look them up anyway. They run a lot of stuff and they've got a lot of money. So they're the ones who got... Bernie Bernie Eccleston was traditionally against having Formula One. You could not find a Formula One clip on YouTube. He hated social media, would not promote the sport, wouldn't modernise, basically. And the sport was actually falling down a dark hole. It was actually failing pretty miserably because the best teams were spending... This is a really long way answer, but teams were spending up to $600 million a year, US, to run two cars. And only those teams... It was became a spending race. It was a spending race rather than an actual engineering race. And the Formula One should be about the engineering. That's really what it is because it is a Formula car. It's a, it's a pro, they're all prototype cars, effectively, so built to a certain set of regulations. Mm-hmm. So Liberty came in. They opened it up to social media. They opened up the drivers to the fans. So now on race weekends, drivers have to go and sign autographs for a certain amount of time on, on the Thursday or over the weekend sometime where they never had to do that before. It was really closed off, which is one of the things I told you I was attracted to. <laughs> but now it's opened up. And Liberty have, that's why there's American races, they're the ones that allowed Netflix in to do the documentaries. That's what's gotten the sport popular. There's a Formula One movie now being made with Brad Pitt at the helm, and he's actually starring in it. And, yep, um, bring that on. So but, so Formula One's opening up itself to a broader audience, and it wants to be, and it should honestly be, the biggest global sport in the world. So, But it kind of is, but money-wise, it's far from it. 
So good things that have changed. Probably the good thing recently that has changed is the um, engine regulations. So these engines, they used to be V8 running on petrol using an unlimited amount of fuel per race, right? And just was very uneco-friendly. The new engines that they developed in 2014 are hybrid engines. So they went from V8s. They're now V6 V6 engines, 1.6 litre V6s, which is a tiny engine that you'd see in a Corolla, like less than a Corolla. Like a, but they're pulling up to 1,000 horsepower now because they're so thermally efficient. Like the technology they've built with battery energy and battery recover, uh, energy recovery systems has, and, and, twin, and turbos and, and whatever that... These engines are just ridiculously efficient. The most efficient engines ever built by man. That's that's fact. And they don't advertise that well enough. They're limited to 100, kilometer, 100 litres of fuel per race. So they use a lot less fuel. They use a lot less everything. So that's one, that's a really positive change. And there's going to be another change in 2026 with the engines as well and the entire formula. So to make that even more efficient. So they're going towards... 100% eco fuel, as in synthetic fuels. They're not going to be using fuel from oil. It would be all synthetic, apparently. So just doing really groundbreaking stuff and making it a bit more society-friendly, as, as it was back in the day. Like Without Formula 1, there's a lot of innovation that comes through Formula 1 from the 50s, 60s, and 70s that you see on today's cars that you, you just wouldn't have seen without Formula 1. Like Brake brake discs, um, radial tyres, uh, just just lots of different things that, that fed down to road. So they actually want to make Formula One more road relevant again, and because it, it was steering away from that. You've you've mentioned it a couple times. We've kind of alluded it, to it a little bit, but this this Drive to Survive series on mm. on mm. Netflix, you've you've kind of given me some of your thoughts about how you know there it's very dramatized. Do you have any other thoughts on Drive to Survive in terms of what it's done for the sport, for better or for worse? I I love what it's done to the sport. It's brought in it's brought in new fans, uh, which means it's brought in new money, which makes the sport stronger. And that's that's what I want. I want a sport. I want the sport. I was honestly for less than ten years ago, I was literally fearful that the sport was going to die. It was altogether just would not exist anymore. Or it would be in a different format that was not nearly as good. But so the fact that when Liberty brought it, took it over and and was able to and opened it up so these shows could be created, then no, I'm all for it. What I'm not for, what I really hate, is the dickheads that only know the sport from Drive to Survive go on social media and talk shit about they've got no idea what they're talking about. That annoys the hell out of me. As someone who knows, and then they try and abuse me like I don't know the sport. I'm like, dude, you've been following the sport for five minutes. That really drives me crazy. I love that they're fans of it, but you need to shut up when you don't know what you're talking about. But it's the yeah. internet. Oh, that's, it's, that's, it's it's the internet. Oh. Anybody has a voice on on the internet, so it's so it's a bit of a catch twenty two because on one end, yeah, it yeah. brought it, it's brought a lot of new fans to the sport, mm-hmm. but the yeah. caliber of the fans is mixed. To say the least, because well, I'm sure I'm sure you've gotten a fair amount of people who there's there's the new fans who are just starting to get into it. But I'm assuming also that Drive to Survive, I hope, has also pushed casual fans to be more hardcore fans as well. Yeah, I hope so. Look, I hope so. I, I mean, I, I hope the fans that follow Formula One and that, that from Drive to Survive who watch. I hope they do invest the time to learn more about it and not just watch one race here or there and actually I just educate themselves on the nuances because it's a very nuanced sport to, to watch. That's what we want. Just just gain some experience and don't talk like you know everything when you don't. One thing I've noticed is that Drive Survivors actually created rivalries amongst fans and I think it's a very American thing, to be perfectly fair, because everything in America is rivalry-based. The biggest rivalry at the moment are between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton. And I don't like Max Verstappen. I actually hate him. And Lewis Hamilton, I like him, but I'm not his biggest fan in the world, that's for sure. But I'll go on and I'll defend Matt. Someone will say a comment about Max, and I'll defend Max, saying, uh, but they'll abuse me, saying I'm a, I'm a Max fan. Oh, no, I'm not. But they won't you know, they don't believe me when I'm not. Or, or I'll defend Lewis for something, and then... 
oh, you're just a Lulu diehard fan and blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm not, though. Like, I'm a fan of the sport. I'm not a fan of these drivers. Mm-hmm. They're multi, multi, multi-millionaires who don't give two shits about me. I'm not a fan of them. I'm a fan of the sport. I'm not going to stick up and defend for someone who doesn't even know I'm defending them for no reason. I'm just using experience and logic to mm-hmm. say this is the way it is. Experience and logic. Huh. That's an interesting concept. Because <laughs> the because you're you're absolutely right about American sports is that and just kind of like American fandom when it comes to sports as well, mm. is that mm. there always needs to be a rivalry. And also there is no nuance for it's like this team automatically good, this team automatically bad, no matter what. Yeah. And yeah, for, yeah. For for me growing up in the Chicago area, like we Chicago sports has some like very storied rivalries, particularly with mm-hmm. football, for example. Yep. Um, Chicago Bears, the Chicago and the Green Bay Packers have been playing for God knows how long. And for a while, the Bears were the Bears were king of that rivalry. But over the last maybe about 30 years, the Packers have been kicking the Bears' ass. And all of a oh, sudden, man. it's like, yeah, the Bears can't Bears fans and Packers fans cannot like coexist because it's it's just and sometimes it's it's no fun to the point where it's like you can't have conversations with anybody about any of this stuff and i'm looking forward to an argument yeah it it, like it it doesn't need to be an argument can't can't people just present like a point of view on something or like something that actually factually happened and without Mm -hmm. it turning into well you see I'm not looking forward to taking like my daughter to some of these sports things because yeah people people can be asses at all of these uh, at all of these events like <clears throat> I've I've gone to plenty of sport sporting events and when I went to go see the Dodgers for example like the LA Dodgers in baseball like I didn't feel safe at that place because I was a Cubs fan like for baseball and that's not the way it should be. But when I went to a rugby match, when the All Blacks came to Chicago to play the Irish. Oh, that's awesome. Everybody was super respectful. They were talking trash, but I never felt yeah threatened. Yeah. I never felt unsafe. I never felt anything like that. And guess what? After the game was over, it just everybody just talked as if like, yep. Yeah, this is, you know, game's over. Okay. Let's good game. That's it. Let's go. Let's go drink and let's go have. Let's, let's go have a drink. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Everyone's friends at the end of it. That that's not how American sports works, and it's stupid. In Australia, it's there is scales of that of that type of rivalry, and especially team rivalry. Like there'll be the the league. It's the, you know I'm talking AFL specifically here. The, the league itself will create rivalries between two teams because traditionally they were. Um, Traditionally, you know, they were just always rivals back in the 80s or whatever, so they create rivalries out of them. They make them big. They set them up, they market them, so fans will go, oh, I've got to go see this rival. It's really no different to any other game. It's just they market these rivalries. And there is some bad stuff that goes on in, in crowds in footage. that You see fights break out and whatever, but still at the end of the day, it's not on the level that I think you guys do. But then again, your level isn't the same as probably South American soccer when you see what happens in the stands in Argentina or Chile in soccer games like those people. It's, crazy. They'll it's, kill they'll kill referees. It's it's, it's crazy. True. It's it's true. But one of one of the other big reasons why American sports um kind of goes through this discourse is because also sports media is a cesspool in the US. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the big things that a lot of these sports media companies talk about, they always talk about who's like, who's the best. That's it. We're not talking about like actual games and things like that. Like I'm a huge basketball fan. I hate all the conversation about who's the greatest player of all time. Like, no, 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 no. I I don't care. I don't care about any of that. I just want to talk about what's actually happening in the game right now. Yeah. That's like arguing if a hot dog is a sandwich or not, who gives a shit? Just eat it. It's it's food, <laughs> it's, it's sustenance. 
like, do we really need to get that granular? To, it's <laughs> food. Audio podcast, me doing air quotes for, for a hot dog, which not everything needs to be a fight. Not everything needs to be discord or, you uh, know, that's right. Just coexisting is starting to become harder and harder and it sucks and I hate it. Mm. I'm hoping it doesn't bleed over into Formula One and, and so forth. I just hope it, I, 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 yeah, I, I can't see it, but I hope it doesn't. Weird, weirder things have happened, right? So, um, have you in your Formula One fandom, how close have you come to just calling it quits? Never, never. This sport is my sport. Admittedly, the last year or two, back when I was younger, before I had children, I would follow, I followed every, pretty much every sport. I used to watch, I, I used to watch these AFL, I used to watch cricket. Cricket games can go for five days. And I would mm -hmm. sit and watch, if I wasn't working, I would watch the whole, all day for five days, this game of cricket. And they were awesome games. There was, fantastic stuff to watch like it was really great and then i watched tennis i would watch formula one i watched this and that but as i got older uh, and with particularly with formula i'd devour everything i could like i said i bought magazines this is before the internet or i even had internet then the internet came along i'd still buy those magazines um but then i would read about it on websites all the time then i follow certain journalists certain bloggers who actually go to the races and report on them. um nowadays um I don't log into those websites every day to read everything. I, I used to read every article front to back, um, first word to last word, every article. Like, and now I'll just browse headlines and read the ones I want to read. Um, so that's where I've kind of lessened. Oh, if I haven't lessened my fandom, I've just lessened my obsession, I guess. So I've grown up and I've grown wiser and I know I don't need to read every, every everything. I still follow it super intensely. So that's the closest I've gotten to say quitting on this sport. Oh, I won't quit on this sport um, unless it quits on me. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Well, and I think, I think your particular way that you follow formula one lends itself a little bit better to, I'm going to stick with this because you follow the sport for the sake of the sport. You don't follow a yes. particular driver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't follow, yeah. you know, because that that's, that happens with a lot with people is that they follow a particular athlete and then that's it. Like they, they will not you continue. Can't get disappointed. Yeah. Can't so heartbroken that way. You're right. But. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's true. So in all of your fandom, can you give me a couple of your favorite moments as a formula one? Uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the other side as well. So whichever one you want to do first, your favorite moments or your, your worst moments. Which whichever okay, one you I'll, want to I'll do. Okay, I will name. I will name one of my favourite moments. It will actually back up my following the sport. So, and this is I actually alluding to when I watched. I would record races on VHS and I watched them over and over. The nineteen ninety nine European Grand Prix race at the Nurburgring. It was, and still is probably the best race I've ever seen because it was rain affected. So there was a lot of chaos on track. There was safety cars. Um, there was cars who were leading who crashed out because they hit a because as the track was drying they were on the wrong tires or they'd hit a slippery patch and slide up into the gravel and they would win out. It's like it every, every two or three laps there was something like there was some reason to be like oh my god throw your arms up in the air right. It ended up coming down to the guy who won hadn't won a race it was only when he it was only his third race win but he hadn't won a race since he raced with Michael Schumacher and it was in a brand new team who'd only been in the sport for two years. Johnny Herbert and the Stewart, his teammate came third and his teammate ended up racing with Michael Schumacher and Ferrari for years. It was just one of those events where it was like, whoever was going to win this race was going to be a great result because it was always going to be, the way it was panning out, it was going to be a first-time winner or someone who doesn't regularly win. And when that happened, it was just such elation to see this amazing race come out and the result that happened because it wasn't the same two or three guys who always were winning that won again. It was just an event every lap or so. Like I was saying, it was just always a, oh, my God, oh, my God, that type of thing. It was, it was fantastic. Other good moments, other good moments, honestly, just seeing good races. The biggest, if anyone's listening to this and is a Max Verstappen or a Red Bull fan, like I, I – and, and I don't like Max Verstappen. I think he's an arrogant ass. He's a not as a racer. He's not sportsmanlike at all. He's very dirty racer. But in 2021, he 
was basically gifted the world championship on the last lap of the race. He was a long way behind. The race director who controls the race, there was a safety car, a car crash with five laps to go. Generally, the way they clean up the track, the whole history of the sport, what would have happened is the car would should have finished behind the safety car. It's a very long-winded story. You kind of got to know the rules behind it, I guess. But what he did, there were lap cars in between Max and Lewis, who were both fighting for the championship. Red Bull called Red Bull called Max in to put him on fresh tyres. Lewis was on old, harder tyres. Lewis was on uh, Max went to new, softer tyres, which are of far quicker tyres. The race director decided to get rid of the cars that were in between them to create a race with one lap to go. Just pre- pretty much just threw the rule book out the window to create to basically manipulate the entire race. To me, that was the lowest lowest event in the sports history, and I hope and hopefully it's the lowest it will ever be, because not only was Lewis robbed of the of his eighth world championship, but this, I think the sport was robbed. It was very I think he put the sport in disrepute. Uh, later, he got fired after the season, the, the race director, for for what he did. People who know the sport know exactly. Even drivers today who drive today still call at that moment and say it was ridiculous. Like, it's absolutely ridiculous that that ever was allowed to happen. But if you talk to a Max Verstappen fan or Red Bull fan, they'll say I'm full of shit and that's the way he was just creating a race and blah, blah, blah. That's The sport was manipulated and it was rigged uh, and it was basically match-fixed because Max was always going to win with those tyres. Uh, but the fact that Lewis was dominating, he dominated that race from start to the last lap. There's no way he should have lost that because they were tied on points and coming into that last race. So whoever finished in front was going to be the world champion. And Lewis dominated it. He was like 30, 40 seconds in front and cruising just easily in front. And that's a long distance. So, yeah, that's it was just not a good situation. And it still, it doesn't hurt me for Lewis. It hurts me for the sport. Like I still plays on me. I actually, I still get frustrated. If the question before was there ever a moment I thought about quitting the sport, that would that would have been the closest. Uh, and if Massey, if Michael Massey had stayed on as race director, as race director, I would have been close to tuning out to be honest, as not going back to it. But the fact they sacked him and brought in different guys, um, multiple people now, right, not just the one, then yeah, really made me yeah, I kept with it. So look that up if you want to. Yeah, if you're interested, look I, it up. There's plenty of it on YouTube. Right. Cool. So last question I have before I open it up to, you know, anything else that you want to talk about. So let's say, you know, you're, you're in a situation where you're, you're with other people and you have to sell formula one to, to a group of people. Like why should, why should we watch this formula one race over watching, you know, something else? What are you going to tell them? Jeez, man, that's actually really hard. What's, what's your, what's your think, ele- elevator pitch for for Formula One over other I don't other think stuff. I could sell it because it's such a nuanced and complex sport. I don't think you could sell it in five minutes of telling someone we need to watch, you need to watch this race because uh, Formula One is something you need to – I'd be very surprised if anyone watched Formula One and watched one race and fell in love with it and got addicted to it. Unless it was one of those races that was like the one I was describing from 1999. Because not every race is like that. A lot of races are just, can be very processional, like literally cars following cars. It doesn't happen nearly as often as it used to, but it still happens where it's just like no one can overtake the system because of the track design, because of strategies, because of whatever else has gone on the weekends. It's just they start the race. They cross the line over the, on, the, on the first lap, and that's the way the race finishes. It's just the way it is, because the cars are super reliable now too. Like cars rarely fail um, mechanically. I don't think I could sell it to watch a race, other than to say, "Mate, this is the best sport that I know of." Sit and yeah, just sit and watch it with me and see what you think. That's honestly all. all I honestly think I could come up with. I'm not, I'm not a salesman by nature anyway, so I don't. I don't know. Yeah, that's honestly the best I think I could come up with. Anything else that you want to talk about from a Formula One perspective that can help me or anybody listening to this help better understand your your fandom or just anything about Formula One that you want? Well, tough question, I know. Sorry. It, it is a tough question. Right now it's preseason, and at the moment there's 
the first race is in Bahrain this year and it has been for the last few years. And all the cars at the moment are actually being released. So the new cars, new liveries, new team names are being released. They just release them as they're ready to go, these cars. So for me, that's a really exciting time of the year, seeing the new cars come out, blah, blah, blah. This year is not as bad because the cars aren't that much different to the way they look. It's just because I actually look at a lot of the detail of the cars and how they're designed because there's a lot of differences. They're not all the same. That's not a spec formula. So they can design the cars pretty much the way they want within the rule book. Um, so, they, so they look different initially, um, but they kind of converge to be the same look when a certain when, when the quickest car, when they figure out what, how the quickest car is being quick. Um, I had a point that I was getting to. Basically, oh, the Bahrain stuff. So they're doing, they're not allowed to test in this sport. Back in the day when I was telling you they were spending 600 million a year, there used to be free for all testing. So cars would just, they would race, then they'd go, they, they might race in um, Hungary, for example. Then they would leave the race on Sunday night, fly to Spain on Monday and start testing, testing the car. New parts, testing for setups, setups for the next races, because the cars aren't always the same. They change setup to suit the circuit and blah, blah, blah. Now they're not allowed to test. They have three days um, three days of testing before the season starts now. That's it. That's all they're allowed to do. There's some minor in-season stuff that they're allowed to do for marketing and blah, 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 just to get around some rules. But now it's really restrictive. It's pretty much the only sport in the world where the drivers aren't allowed to practice. Um, so basically what teams have done now, they have these really high-class simulators. Like These simulators cost millions of dollars. And if you ever see one, they are insane. They're on hydraulics and they map everything on everything a car is doing on track. Like it's, they're just remarkable pieces of, of machinery. So that's how drivers test now. Yeah, it's uh, how else do I explain my fandom? Mm-hmm. I think that's it. Just the detail of I don't know. Just just I don't know. My the fact that I know that stuff and the fact that I want to know that stuff and want to know more about it. I think that kind of highlights my fandom. Why I why I am. I don't know. That's just a personality trait. Maybe why I get so detailed and involved in it. But that's that's the sport I chose to be that hardcore into. I guess I used to be others, but I let the others go. Yeah. One of my favorite lines from a TV show of all time is "Don't half-ass two things, whole ass one." And it sounds like you're yeah. whole assing your Formula One, and mm. it's good to have interest in all kinds of different sports, but there is something to be mm. said about narrowing yourself down and yeah. focusing on one in particular versus, you know, kind yeah. of splitting. I suppose if you split your time up where it's like, Hey, once the formula one season's over, if something else is in its place, but nowadays with a lot of, with a lot of sports, there's a lot of stuff in the off season that if you don't follow it, like, mm you may eventually be a little bit behind the curve and just kind of some of the things that you were talking about, how like, Hey, the unveiling of the new cars, this, you know, seeing the the new schedule of the new races that they're having mm. any, anything with, with the teams that, that come out, there's, you couldn't, you could be yeah. missing out a little bit and you don't strike me as someone who likes to be behind the curve when it comes to knowing about stuff that's going on in the sport. No, no, I no, I don't. I I have a few friends who follow Formula One, and they still kind of blow out of how much I know about it. Like it's hard to stop me talking on certain things, especially when the person knows what I'm talking about, or we just have a conversation or whatever. So, yeah, it's um no, I like to be on top of it for sure. Always have. Well, Adam, thank you very much for your time talking about Formula One. Where can the people find you? Do you have anything that you want to plug? Uh, well, firstly, thanks for letting me ramble on and thanks for indulging me in talking about Formula 1 for so long and so much. Um, yeah, look, this isn't that type of podcast, but um, I don't, I'm don't. i not really active on social media too much. But um, if you're listening to this, um, uh, look, I have a Letterboxd account where I watch a lot of films and log, log everything I watch. So uh, that's at K Kerbrider, K-E-R-B-R-I-D-E-R. Otherwise, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not very, I'm not. Oh, I have a Twitter account, but I'm not on Twitter. If that makes sense, and blah blah. So no, nah, I don't. I don't go blogging about Formula One or anything unless you catch me in a Facebook comment. <laughs> That's, that'll be about it. I, I suppose since you know we both we both write Sip Pop, I'd be kind of remiss to ask. Yes. Do you have a favorite racing movie? Um, or, sorry, or, I should or, mention that I do write for Sip Pop too. 
or okay. or is it one of those things where you you watch these racing movies and you're just like jesus christ like what what is this you know what what did i watch recently um i did gran turismo is not too bad but i watched ferrari recently mm -hmm. and if you read my ferrari my review on ferrari the one thing right they never get right as much as i actually like gran turismo the one thing they never get right even in rush is the racing they do not get the racing right it's horrendous and so aggravating to watch where they got it closest was probably ford versus ferrari that's really good ferrari is terrible with the racing and people are praising that movie like it's it bothers me so much and gran turismo is also very very average in the way it just presents the racing um it's very glossy very it's not a bad movie overall but the racing itself isn't awesome there is an old movie from the 60s say, starring james garner james garner called grand prix and that was awesome i think john frankenheimer directed that was actually really because they actually have real formula one drivers from the time in that movie and the way they film it behind the scenes that's a cool movie to watch for any if, if you're a movie fan you don't have to be a racing fan it's definitely worth the watch because they actually race around monaco and yeah it's it's really good there you go some some recommendations would be remiss not to do our duty to recommend movies or talk a little bit about yeah about movies. That's fair. So, well, <laughs> that's going to do it for this episode of Sports Ball. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to anything and everything on the SPDM crew, wherever you get your podcast. Join us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, X, and Blue Sky at SPDM crew. Check out our website soon to be out at spdmcrew.com. And if you've got a podcast idea or if you're interested in part of being the uh, being on the SPDM crew, email us at spdmcrew at gmail.com. Until next time, pain heals, chicks dig scars, and glory lasts forever. Yeah.